Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This podcast is being released the weekend just prior to Christmas, and coming up on this edition, you'll be hearing from author Ace Collins. He's written a number of books about the history of songs related to Christmas. He traces the history of the classic work, Handel's Messiah. Plus, the Christmas season can provide a reminder of the importance of sharing the message of the gospel. Daniel Rice of Hashtag Gospel discusses the concept of his organization and new book, addressing sharing the Christian faith in today's culture. Then turning our attention to movies, some comments are ahead from Amy Spurlock. Her husband was a pastor assigned to a declining church outside Nashville. A church rescued when a group of refugees arrived. Their story is told in the movie All Saints, now on DVD. Also on this edition of The Intersection, continuing on the cinematic track, some insight about the latest Star Wars film from Paul A.C. of Plugged In, a division of Focus on the Family. He pays special attention to spiritual or religious elements of this latest installment. Finally, analysis and commentary from Deanna Wallace of Americans United for Life regarding the news that the U.S. Department of Justice is conducting an investigation into the nation's largest abortion provider, Planned Parenthood, for its trafficking in the body parts of aborted children. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Ace Collins has written a host of books dealing with Christmas, including Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas, More Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas, and others. He spoke with me recently during what has become an annual conversation during the Christmas season. One of the components of our chat dealt with the Messiah, composed by George Frederick Handel. Here now is Ace Collins. Well, 20 years before Handel wrote this piece, he was the Elvis of London. I mean, literally speaking. I mean, this guy couldn't go anywhere without being feted, without being hugged, without people seeking his autograph. And Handel was a regular at the royal palace, and, and he literally was on top of his world. He wrote oratorios, which were kind of three-act musicals, and, and that, came out, that went out of style. And suddenly no one wanted his music anymore. Handel was not prepared for the future, and by the time we're talking about, found himself on the poorest part of town, living in a little two-room shack, Afraid to open his door, afraid it would be sheriff's officers who were going to call him away to prison because he couldn't pay his debts. He received a letter from a man named Charles Jennings, who was an eccentric, to say the least, a man that people avoided if possible. And Jennings suggested that Handel write another oratorio based on all of the different places the Bible talks about the Messiah, including the Old Testament passages. And so Handel has nothing else to do, so he spends a couple of weeks doing that, knowing, though, that it will never be heard because nobody wants him anymore. Well, it just so happens an old friend of his from Ireland kind of throws him a bone. He said, if, you'll, if you can get to Ireland, I can get you some money conducting an, a small orchestra as we raise money for charity hospitals in Ireland. And so Handel goes to avoid the debts, and he brings this new piece of music with him, and they play the piece of music. And suddenly this, this Messiah is taken Ireland by storm. They hear about it in London. So he goes back to the British Isles where he's invited to play on the big stages of London. One of the first nights it, it performs, there is King George II in the audience. And when the 
Hallelujah chorus comes about. King George is so overcome that he stands up. Well, what happens when a king stands? Everybody else stands up too. And they've been standing up ever since. Uh, this song continued to be popular throughout Hand- the remainder of Handel's lifetime. It, it, it kind of, in a, in a way, immortalized him, uh, besides rescuing him from death. And by the mm, 140, 50 years ago, it started to be used at Easter to, uh, as, as a performance to celebrate Easter. People realized that it was so popular that if they moved it to Christmas and charged admission, that they could raise money for charities. And what happened is that's what they've done. And since that time, it's become a Christmas tradition. And no piece of music has ever raised more money for the least of these than Handel's Messiah, which is all the more remarkable when you consider Handel was one of the least of these when he wrote it. And the first performances were to raise money for charity hospitals for the poorest of the poor. And talk about, if you would, Ace, just for a moment, the background of George Friedrich Handel. He's someone that was, as you said, he was the Elvis of London, and he fell on some hard times. His brand of music, his style had fallen out of favor, did not have the popularity it once did, and he was a bit on the destitute side, if you will. Was there a faith component to his life? Oh, he was... He was a man of extreme faith. He knew the Bible inside out. He uh, was a man who prayed nightly, went to church on a regular basis. So Handel's background in Germany and then in, in England revolved around his, his spirituality. But he must have felt like when he ended up in debtor's prison and, and no one wanted to hear him anymore, he must have felt like that the Lord had deserted him. And yet, you know, he, he, read, the, he read a letter that nobody else would have read because it was sent by a man who was such an eccentric. And isn't it remarkable how the Lord works to restore a man's faith and also restore a man's career by sending the most unlikely of all messengers? And um, so Handel was rewarded in the long term that he never gave up on his faith. But I'm sure if with the situation that he was in, he must have been close to giving up. Ace Collins here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website acecollins.com. Well, I had a chance recently to talk with Daniel Rice, founder of the organization Hashtag Gospel and author of the book Hashtag Gospel, Life, Hope, and Truth for Generation Now. In our conversation, he discussed the purpose of the organization and the book, encouraging and challenging Christians to share faith in a manner that's effective to modern culture. Here now is Daniel Rice. In the last decade or so that I've been involved with ministry, I've kind of seen a little bit of a trend that uh, as students grow up in church and then graduate and go off to college, there's this age range where uh, they tend to kind of walk away from the faith. And, you know, the more I saw it, the more I was interested and and really wanted to figure out why. And the more I researched, the more I talked to people, it kind of came to me that it's not necessarily the gospel itself that is driving people away. It's the packaging that we use to communicate it. And every generation, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the 1930s, the 1830s, or the 1970s, you know, every generation kind of pushes back or rejects the culture of the generation before. And so if we want to effectively communicate, communicate the gospel, we need to kind of unwrap the, all the cultural trimmings that we've put on it from the generation before and repack it 
with um, things that are relevant and engaging for the current generation. And that, in one word, is called contextualization. Mm. And you have written a book. You've also set up a website, which is, a, a, as we might say, a media-driven. There are a number of video short features that are on this particular website. So tell me about some of the, the mechanics or the structure of the, the whole ministry now of Hashtag Gospel. Sure. Uh, yeah, we use video, we use a book and um, social media content, but as crazy as it sounds, the idea from the, for that type of thing came from <laughs> Acts chapter 17 you know, 2,000 years ago when Paul was in Athens at the Areopagus talking to the leaders of Athens. And you know, he had looked around the city and kind of gotten a feel for the people there. And then as he's giving his gospel presentation, he's, you know looks over at these guys and says, Hey, look at this statue to the unknown God. I know him. Let me tell you about him. And then he goes on to explain the gospel and even uses some of their own poets and writings in his conversation. And you look around at the different cities that Paul goes to and preaches at, and he never really gives the gospel in the same way. It's always based on the people he's trying to reach. And so, you know, taking that principle and applying it to now, if we're trying to reach the generation that exists now, and I don't really even think that's an age group. I just think that's people that are um, kind of existing and engaging with the culture now. We need to do it in a way that speaks to them, and we're a heavily media-driven culture. I mean, there are screens everywhere. You can't get away from it. Your phone is a veritable computer and, you know, television screen now. Um, Everywhere you go, you're bombarded with information, and we need to learn to communicate the gospel in a way that kind of bypasses the filter that we all have so that we're not inundated or overwhelmed with uh, information. And so we use, you know, these short one- to two-minute videos. We use social media posts. We use the content in the book to try to engage the current generation with the gospel. And that could be people who have grown up in the church and worked away with it. That could be people who have felt burned by the church. That could be people who never had anything to do with the church but have always kind of been on the fringe and interested any of those people, we want to, you know, give an opportunity to interact with the gospel in their own culture. As far as the video content goes, it really correlates uh, well with the book, and the book itself is based on the book of Romans. It takes the truth that Paul teaches about the gospel in the book of Romans and kind of sets it in the setting of modern culture. And so the videos, each of the videos kind of take a concept. Like the first video talks about coffee, but it's an illustration of the universality of sin and how nobody can escape it. It doesn't matter, you know, what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how many likes you have on whatever social media uh, channel that you prefer. All people start from the same level playing field, and that is universally fallen. And, you know, that is in that video, we kind of, in that one to two minute video, we kind of talk about that in the illustration of coffee. You know, every time we hear Jesus talk about truth in the Bible, almost every time, he pairs it with a narrative or a story because stories stick with people or illustrations stick. And so the content that we're putting out is putting biblical truth in a modern setting and then adding in a story or something to make it stick. Daniel Rice here on The Intersection.
Find out more by going to the website, hashtag gospel, spell it out, hashtag gospel.com. The intersection continues now with Amy Spurlock. Her story is told in the movie All Saints. And in our recent conversation, she discussed the real-life series of events upon which the movie is based. Surrounding a church her husband Michael pastored, it was declining until a group of Burmese refugees arrived. She commented on some of the material in the movie. It's available now on DVD. Here now is Amy Spurlock. He was spending a lot of time at church, and he was wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with the fact that, you know, they wanted to close the church. They were desperate to close this church because it was a drain. It was a drain. And I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but they were looking at other properties. They were going to move into, you know, a strip mall or something like that. And I wasn't too happy about that idea. Because I thought, boy, what a beautiful, you know, place, what a beautiful property. And they were worried about paying money for the altar flowers. And I said, you know, there are flowers that are growing out back. Just take those flowers and put them in the beautiful vases. Let the, you know, let the property help. And, you know, there's this great saying by Johannes Bach, you know, it, it says, to use what you've got. Be like Bach. Use what you have. If you don't have 12 cellos, use one cello and make it sound great. So we didn't have flowers. We couldn't afford flowers. So go out back and cut some of those beautiful wild Tennessee flowers and put them up there and, and hold those up to God and say, look at how gorgeous these are. So on this one particular night, Michael had been out with uh, the senior warden, and they had been looking at properties, and it wasn't very exciting. And he was walking in the in the field, looking at the flowers, saying, mm, I, "We need to cut these flowers for the service." And yeah, it's, yeah. And then God spoke to him and said here you go. I've given you farmland. I've given you these farmers. And here is this church. What are you doing? He came home. He smelled horrible because he'd been out all day. <laughs> I was in bed. Everyone was asleep. And he told me this idea. We're going to build a farm. And I immediately laughed at him. I said, you're what? And the first thing I thought of was that movie, The Astronaut Farmer. And then I thought, well, how do? We've got the Anglican farmer. Suddenly it makes sense. I didn't sleep all night long. And I thought, God, you are amazing. You have a sense of humor. When you told me I was going to be out in the mission field, you didn't tell me I was going to be out in the mission field. But there I was. And never looked back. I think the most important thing 
to remember about hospitality is that it's more than just cups and plates. It's it's a way to usher in Christ through your own form of love, your own form of love during this time. And if that means, you know, bringing someone home or into your fold that you normally wouldn't do, um, there, there are so many ways to exhibit hospitality and to enjoy that as well. And it's not just serving people from our homes, but in our hearts. And, you know, Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So look at that person that's on the street. That might, that might be God. That, that might be the face of Jesus looking right back at you. And seeing God in everyone that you meet. God gives us this hospitality every day, as you said, by the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And he shows us that glorious compassion, that gift of unwavering love by his death on the cross. That's unwavering love. Can you imagine that someone would give his life for you? It astounds me every day when I think of it. Amy Spurlock here on The Intersection. The website address is allsaintsmovie.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to the website meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find on the homepage a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Paul Acey joined me recently on the Meeting House program. He's a reviewer for Plugged In, a department of focus on the family, and he discussed some elements of the new film Star Wars, The Last Jedi, including addressing spiritual themes and offering words of caution for parents. Here now from that conversation is Paul Acey. This force is always sort of a tricky thing to deal with with this, yep. uh, with this franchise. Um, and I know that people are really familiar with the franchise by now, but just to recap, um, the force is this energy that sort of binds the universe together in this universe, and it, it is, has a light side and a dark side, and it's sort of the, the magical power that powers um, the Jedi and the bad guys, which are called the Sith. And so you have these these magical forces essentially in play that have a certain, I guess, reflection toward um, Eastern religion. Um, now, that's something that, that I think parents and Christian parents have been trying to navigate for years, really sure, decades. Absolutely, now. yep. Yeah, so it, it's... It's one of those things that I think that a lot of parents have probably kind of figured out, but it, it for me, it presents an opportunity where you can actually sit down and talk with your kids. 
and sort of talk about what you see in the movie, talk about the worldview, and sort of make it distinct from what we believe in. You know, we don't believe in the dualism of of the force that you see here. We believe in a savior, and I think that that's an important thing to to stress to your kids as, as you navigate this movie. Paul Acey is joining us today, one of the reviewers for Plugged In, and those reviews are found online. You could also hear the Plugged In radio feature here on Faith Radio, and we're talking about this movie, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, the latest installment in the series that actually premieres tonight at a number of theaters, and then, of course, tomorrow, actually the official release date. In the Plugged In movie review that you've written on the website, you actually say that this concept of the Force, and we were talking about the Force just a few minutes ago, you say the Force takes perhaps an even more prominent role in The Last Jedi than we've Mm -hmm. seen in a while. Elaborate on that if you would. It's specifically referred to here as a religion. Um, Hmm. And so you have even, it has some state sacred text attached to it. Um, and it's explained pretty thoroughly. You know, I, I don't know if, if your listeners will remember way back to uh, to The Empire Strikes Back. You have Yoda talking to Luke Skywalker about what the Force is. Do you have a scene like that here where it sort of impacts it very, very thoroughly in a sense? So, so you do have to navigate a little bit more than you might in some of the, the other previous incarnations of this movie. But it, I think it can be done. What What are some of the the principles when you look at the nature of the force and actually being set forth or described as a religion? How is that done? Do you Do you see? Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting. You don't you don't see you know church services <laughs> you know, dedicated yeah. to the force. You really just have. It, Essentially, these these Jedi and the people who get really wrapped up in the Force, they they strike you a little bit as as monks, in a way. Um, when you see Luke Skywalker, and you referred to it earlier, where he is sort of this this isolationist hermit, you know, away from everybody, and it, it feels like a, a strong um, discipline that they they manifest. They don't pray to anything. They don't uh, sing hymns to it, but but there is sort of a sense that this is a supernatural presence, the, this force that you can tap into. In in some ways, it's that's a really influential um, facet when you when you look at today's culture and sort of this this idea that that a lot of us sort of mix and match religion yeah, um, yeah especially when you're when you're young and you're there's there's this desire for spirituality without going to church or without hooking it on any particular faith and and this this may be the biggest danger if there is to to when you're talking about you know orthodox faith where it encourages you to think about universe and spirituality in a different sort of way. Paul A.C. here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website pluggedin.com. Finally, here on The Intersection podcast, it's staff counsel for Americans United for Life, Deanna Wallace. She discussed the Department of Justice's confirmation that it is investigating Planned Parenthood regarding its trafficking and body parts from unborn children. She shared other information related to the activity of Planned Parenthood as well, 
From that conversation, here now is Deanna Wallace. So what we know is that they are investigating whether or not Planned Parenthood violated federal law in regards to their so-called donation of fetal tissue program. Um, And this all goes back to um, the videos from the CMP uh, and the Select Lives, or the Select Panel on Infant Lives that uh, Congress wrapped up at the end of last year. Well, and as we look at these CMP, Center for Medical Progress, videos, it's very interesting because you have some in the law enforcement profession that are attempting to put David Delighton and and his team there at CMP actually bring charges against them. But what is what really is criminal that's taking place, obviously, is what was shown on these videos with respect to Planned Parenthood. As you mentioned, there has been a congressional committee. I think you have a Senate and a House committee both that have actually found that Planned Parenthood could have been involved in criminal activity. So when you look at what the congressional committees were saying, let's go back in time now just a bit. What were some of their findings? So the House panel actually made 15 different recommendations um, to law enforcement officials across the nation um, regarding Planned Parenthood's uh, fetal tissue program, um, and the the allegation was mostly that they were violating um, federal or state laws um, <clears throat> or regulations with regards to that. And um, so there were 15 different recommendations, um, and one of those was to the Department of Justice. And we're really happy that the Department of Justice now um, is taking those recommendations seriously. Well, you mentioned federal and state laws. Give us an idea about what sorts of laws that Planned Parenthood has been violating. So a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that you're not supposed to profit off of any sort of human body part donation. Um, It's kind of like if I wanted to um, donate my kidney, I can't receive compensation for that uh, because that's not ethical. It's... um, a practice that the government doesn't want to happen. Um, and so they very common sensely decided to ban that. Um, and other states have different regulations on how that transfer happens, um, the informed consent requirements that must go into it. And so these are the types of laws that um, that Planned Parenthood possibly violated um, that, that the DOJ and other states are looking at. It's really been, I guess the first videos were released, what was it, maybe a couple of years ago, something like that? Yeah, I believe 2015 is when they started coming out, and they um, they really sparked a firestorm across the the nation of people really being concerned about this. And I know that there's been this allegation that they are edited and distorted. Um, Planned Parenthood still <laughs> says that they were heavily edited, um, and that's simply not the truth. The select panel um, had access to every single second of footage Um, and cmp put out the full footage um, taking out only bathroom breaks and travel whenever they posted the full videos online and it is hours and hours and hours of this footage and uh, i personally watched the hours um, myself um, because i wanted to know the truth so they're not edited they are not uh, fake and the people 
that work for Planned Parenthood say exactly what they appear to say in the videos, and that is backed up by multiple reviews of those videos. Deanna Wallace here on The Intersection. The Americans United for Life website is aul.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also download the Faith Radio app for four different platforms. The Intersection Podcast is available through the app as well. Also, when you go to meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org and scroll over the programming section, you can find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room, devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also find The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that's meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org and visit the programming section. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.